Well, here we go. Today is Reformation Day. Amen? <laughs> and, of course, on Reformation Day, we love to hear Reformation sermons. And I toyed with the possibility of, uh, of preaching about Martin Luther, but I've already done that. And, uh, uh, Jason, I know you're not in this room, but if you wouldn't mind sending a link to that message, uh, I think people will be blessed to hear a, just a biography focused on Martin Luther, which I did a few years ago, and it was very impactful to me, and uh, we want to make it available to you as well. But we love to rehearse how Martin Luther stood single-handedly against the most powerful leaders in the Western world and prevailed, and he prevailed with these words, Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. We love to hear the heroic tales of men and women who risked and in some cases lost their lives in service for our heavenly king. And they did that for the gospel. And the reason you and I are not Catholic today is because the reformers did everything in their power to protest Roman Catholic works-based man-centered view of how sinners may be found right with God. It was, in fact, their, their organized and relentless protest of such false teaching that earned them the enduring name Protestant. And if you are not a Catholic today, and you are a believer, you are Protestant. At the heart of their protest was the recovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The very doctrine that Paul is preaching and teaching repeatedly throughout all of his 13 letters and especially here in Romans. Historically speaking, 500 years leading up to the October 31st, 1517 day that has... Uh, it was the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. But before that, dark, that, that day of bringing in the light, or at least the beginnings of it, there was a period of time, a very long period of time, which has been commonly referred to as the Dark Ages. You want to know why they were dark they were dark, and they have been considered dark because the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ had been lost and covered over by a works-based religion that kept people enslaved to a system that could offer nothing greater than an undetermined period of time, perhaps hundreds or thousands of years, in which you would spend uh, all of that time in the flames of purgatory. One of the saddest funerals I ever attended, and not officiated, but attended, was of a young man in a Catholic family who died. And you know they always print those little pamphlets when, when you arrive at the wedding. It says something about who the person is. And on the front of it was kind of a skewed image of a human being, and, and there were flames on the front cover which was consistent, totally consistent with their doctrine. Their hope was that he was in purgatory and would stay there until he is cleansed. The reformers, once they began preaching the true gospel, things started to change. And eventually they developed a, 
a kind of a, a, a saying in Latin that kind of encapsulated what was happening in the Western world as the gospel, the revived gospel, was sweeping through the Western world. And in Latin, many of you know it, the phrase was this, post tenebras lux, which means after darkness, light. Light. When that young Catholic priest, Martin Luther, nailed his 95 theses to the door that day, it started a heated conversation that literally changed the world. But if you want to understand the origin and core of Reformation teaching, you have to go back. You have to go back in time. You have to go back from the 1600s, from, from the 16th century A.D. You, you need to go back past the days of Paul in the 1st century A.D., you need to go back even beyond that, past the days of Isaiah in the 8th century B.C. You have to go back before Moses in the 13th century B.C., all the way back to the 19th century B.C., roughly 1,000 years before Homer, to arrive at the appropriate time and place where you would meet a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham. The story of this man's encounter and continued relationship with God reveals the origin of the gospel as the only ground of true hope for sinners like you and me, who must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We have an appointment. We don't know when that appointment is, but we will arrive on time. because God will see fit to it that we are there. And so when you read Paul's letters to the Romans, his letter to the Romans, you're really reading an epistle that is not primarily a polemic against the Jewish opponents and their objections, but rather a passionate plea for all people everywhere to fly to Christ by faith for righteousness that God freely imputes to all who believe. Last time we met, Paul taught us that the justification God offers in Christ is apart from the law, right? You remember that from last week? Today, Paul teaches, this is an exciting part of the chapter. You're going to get excited as soon as I say it. Today, Paul's teaching is on justification apart from circumcision. And all, and all God's people said. Now, if you understand what circumcision entails for young boys, young Jewish boys, it may sound a little strange, maybe even a little weird. That it, but it needs, to be, it needs to be addressed because our justification, there are things about our justification that Paul has not unpacked yet for these, his Jewish brothers. That salvation or justification is apart from circumcision, is really, really important. And the implications for this are, are wonderful and beautiful. But even though it seems a little confusing here at the beginning, my job is to help us understand what Paul is saying and then help us apply it to our own lives. And I think 
We can do that today. And frankly, its relevance to you is going to be pro, uh, precious and profound. In fact, I was surprised by it. Now, I've offered in the bulletin three hooks to hang our thoughts on, and I'll refrain from uh, reading them to you now for the sake of time, but speaking of this text in Matthew 5, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew, I'm not sure where Matthew came from, Romans chapter 4, let's stand together and read this text. This is Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. Romans 4, starting with verse 9. And Paul writes, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham walked before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. In this passage, Paul intends to teach us three things about Abraham that the Jews in Paul's day, needed to wrestle with if they were to discover and embrace God's saving righteousness. If you're new here, this is what the whole beginning part of Romans is about. There is a, there is a righteousness you desperately need, you don't have, and you cannot earn. Without that righteousness, you will never be acceptable to God. The question is, where do we get that righteousness? Paul's answer, you get it from Christ. You don't get it from Christ and law-keeping. Not Christ and circumcision. Not Christ and anything. It is Christ. And we've spent 22 messages on this so far. This is number 23, I think. Trying to unpack that for us in a way that is appropriately repetitive, because we have to learn this, and very, very profound in terms of how it changes us, especially if you have yet to bow the knee before Jesus Christ. So let's look at these three, beginning with the first one, and here is point number one. Abraham was justified before circumcision. Abraham was justified before circumcision. Now notice with me verse 9 that Paul begins with the question, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? In other words, the circumcised are the Jews, the uncircumcised are Gentiles. Is it only for the Jews or is it also for the Gentiles? That's the question. Now we need to look back at the context 
to see what Paul is thinking about here. In the, in the previous verses, verses 6 through 8, Paul quotes David out of Psalm 32, that precious psalm. How blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. How blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not impute or count his sins against him. And this is the blessing. How blessed is the man. How blessed is the man. How blessed is the man. And that's why Paul asks, is this blessing for the uncircumcised or for the circumcised? Does, does somebody get left out of this? And Paul's reminding his Jewish brethren that while all people are sinners, listen carefully, while it's true that all people are sinners, it is also true that not all people, some people some people do not have their sins counted against them. Not all people, but some people don't have their sins counted against them. Who are those people, and, and, and how can I be one? And so God blesses them with forgiveness. God, the blessing that, that David is referring to is God's blessing of forgiveness and the gift of righteousness being declared by the judge of all things that this man or woman stands righteous before the law and in the eyes of God. Now, you remember from last week that the word count is an important word. It's a bookkeeping or banking term. It's used in the ancient business documents for crediting payment to one's account. It's writing it down, keeping a record. Sometimes it's translated reckoned. Sometimes it's translated imputed. It is put on your account, whatever it is, whether it's righteousness or unrighteousness. And so when David says that the blessed man is the one whose record of sin is not recorded on his heavenly ledger, that's what he's talking about. And the reason it's not counted against him is because his debt has been paid. This is the blessing that Paul is referring to. Is this blessing for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? This is the blessing. It is a blessing that Abraham received by faith. We don't think of, of Abraham as a sinner, and, and, and the Jews didn't either. He was the superstar. I mean, he did everything perfectly. He was the closest thing to the messianic figure that a, that a Jew could comprehend. And they rejected the real one, Jesus. But it is a blessing that Abraham received by faith. And it is the blessing David received by faith. And so here, in verse 9, Paul asks, is that blessing only for the circumcised? That is, is it only available to the Jews or is it available to the Gentiles also? Notice, remember, um, Paul is a Jew. And I think specifically now he's not speaking to Jews and Gentiles. He's speaking to his Jewish brethren. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And that is, we Jews understand that in Genesis 15, God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. Specifically in Genesis 15, verse 6 uh, Moses clearly tells us about Abraham, and he says, And Abraham believed the Lord, 
and it was counted, there's that word, counted to him as righteousness. Now the next question then, that Paul asks, is critical to his argument. We've got the argument kind of framed. The question is framed for this Jewish brethren. Is this blessing of forgiveness of sins, is it only for the circumcised, the Gentiles, or is it also for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles? And every Jew would say, it's for us, baby. It's for us only. Nobody else gets this. We are God's chosen people. And Paul is saying, not so fast. Not so fast. Let's look at the book. Remember that discussion last week? What does the scripture say? Paul very wisely takes them back to Genesis, the beginning. Now, uh, the next question that Paul asks is, is critical, and here it is. How then was it counted to him, verse 10? How then was it counted? That is, how was righteousness counted to Abraham, or his forgiveness, or his right standing with God? How was that counted or imputed to Abraham? And by that, really what he means is, when was it imputed? When was it counted to him? Before or after he had been circumcised? And Paul's concern has to do with the chronological progression of the Genesis narrative with Abraham being declared righteous. Was he declared righteous before he was circumcised or after? And answer, not after. Look at, look at the text. He says, not after, verse 10, but before he was circumcised. In fact, God did not command Abraham to be circumcised. Are you ready for this? Minimally, at the absolute minimum, he was not commanded to be circumcised until 14 years later, more than a decade. And some scholars say, listen, it doesn't have to be 14 years the way the math is done in the scripture, it lands us where Ishmael was, was uh, circumcised, and that was 14 years after the Lord had appeared to Abraham and imputed righteousness to him by faith. In fact, some scholars say it could be 20, 25 years later. It was way later. You see, if the Jews are arguing that you have to be circumcised before God will declare you righteous, they now have a really big problem because their own scripture, Genesis, written by their own prophet, Moses, says that he was declared righteous 14 years before God required him to be circumcised. So what does that mean? It means that the justification could not have been contingent on circumcision. And it fits perfectly with what Paul said last time, and the time before, and the time before, and the time before, these, these messages, these texts. It is not faith and anything. It is the empty hand of faith simply receiving, by the grace of God, the righteousness we desperately need. And it comes through Christ. Now, don't miss this. Paul's argument leads us to a, a logical conclusion. Abraham was justified by God 
as an uncircumcised man. Now, that may not ring your bell, but listen to this. Let me just say that same thing in a different way. Abraham was justified by faith when he was a Gentile. He was a Gentile. God called him out of Ur of Chaldee. There were no Jews. He was the first. And God declared him righteous before Abraham did anything. Before he did anything good. And Abraham received it by the empty hand of faith. But you know what? The only way to receive it by the empty hand of faith is if you empty yourself of all pride. All self-achievement relative to earning God's favor. You've got to get rid of it all. You've got to get rid of it all. And since he was justified as an uncircumcised man, that means that he was justified by God as a Gentile like you and me. God declared Abraham righteous when he was a Gentile. So don't say that God only justifies those who are circumcised. That can't possibly be true according to the scriptures. The record of Abraham's the record of Abraham is un unambiguous. It is perfectly clear. And you may not pick up on it the first time you read Genesis 15, but read Paul. Read Paul will take you back to it and say, let's look at each word very carefully. And all of this allows Paul to claim Abraham as the father of all who believe. That's a critical statement for this message. You're going to hear this again. Abraham is not just the father of the Jews. He's the father of all who believe because he was the first one who was justified by faith. Now, if you're tracking with me so far, and you've probably begun thinking about how this will impact the church that Paul planted or the churches that Paul planted. He didn't plant the one in Rome. Someone else did, and nobody really knows but he's writing to that church. How would all of this affect the churches? That's important to us too, right? Because we're a church. And we're, we're a very small, metaphorically, a, a microscopic part of the great body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Think about this. There would naturally be some serious growing pains in a church where all of a sudden there are not just Jews meeting. Remember, the gospel was to the Jew first, and they were the ones who received it first. And here's the church of Rome. I mean, everybody would have expected that it would be a, a Jewish church. And now because of the ministry of Paul and others, but primarily Paul, Gentiles are coming into the church. The Jews hated the Gentiles. Hated the Gentiles. You talk about racial strife. They hated the Gentiles. And they start showing up at church. <laughs> and, uh, and Paul says, you guys got to learn to get along with one another. And not just learn to get along. You need to bring the gospel that you say that you believe and bring it to bear on your relationship with the other people in your church. There needs to not only be no hostility, there must be in the place of hostility, sacrificial, joyful love. For one another. 
You don't have the privilege, most of you, of being in Cal 101 uh, when we do this uh, again and again. We had the beginnings of it this morning, and I always ask people, uh, one of the three questions is, uh, we're glad you're here, and you've been here for however many weeks you've been here. Why did you choose to come back? And, and I praise God that usually the first thing that they say is the teaching. The teaching, the teaching from the pulpit, the teaching from ISI, the teaching with ladies' ministry and, and, and all of that. And the other thing that I hear consistently is that we found, we found people who love. And what I hear people saying as they come is it's really hard to find a church where the doctrine is sound and there's love. Because sometimes doctrine is there and it, and it squelches love. Or, or sometimes there's a lot of love there, but there's no sound teaching. You know what the Apostle Paul wants in the local church? He wants a unified body. I love this as I look out over the congregation and I've met people recently coming from different nationalities, different backgrounds, some of you from different countries. And you have found a place where, where every time you come, you're loved. People are praying for you. People are talking to you. People are asking about you. It's a marvelous thing, and it's the way it's supposed to be. Because the goal of our instruction, Paul says, is love from a pure heart and, and a sincere faith. Now, there would naturally be some serious growing pains in the church. And part of the reason was that they would have to learn to worship differently if they're Jews and Gentiles in the church. They would have to learn to eat differently. You get that? I mean, I mean the Gentiles ate anything. I mean, anything. You think about people in, in other cultures today where they eat bugs. You know, I mean, John the Baptist did that, so it's okay. But you don't know, I mean, if you go to a small group and somebody shows up with a dish of bugs, it might be trick-or-treat tonight, but, but really, I mean, they weren't allowed, to, the Jews weren't allowed to eat pork, and now Peter and Paul are saying, it's okay, it's okay, things have changed, at least in this regard, in the ceremonial sense, it's changed, you can eat whatever you want. I think one of my sons either has or threatened to buy a t-shirt with his favorite scripture on it, kill and eat, from, from <laughs> Acts 10. Not so, Lord, it's unclean. No, 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 don't say it's unclean if I say it's clean. They would have, they would have to think about the law and the traditions differently. In fact, when we get to Romans chapter 10, Paul will address the fact that in Christ, the lines of division are torn down so that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction between black and white or any other skin, color, or culture. We are now in Christ. You're going to have to learn to love each other. And if you're not going to love each other, there are going to be consequences. And then in chapter 12, He'll exhort them to love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another with honor. Can you imagine? I mean, these were enemies. And it's all grounded in the fact that Abraham was uncircumcised. He was an uncircumcised Gentile when God justified him by grace alone, through faith alone. Abraham knew nothing of circumcision. 
until 14 years later. And so, the first truth about Abraham relative to the doctrine of justification by faith alone is that Abraham was justified before circumcision. The second truth about Abraham that's relevant to this doctrine is that Abraham received circumcision as a sign and seal. As a sign and seal. Now notice what Paul writes here. He says in verse 11, He, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal. Now this is interesting. It tells us what the sign or or what circumcision was originally designed for by God. Why did God say that the Jewish people should do this? He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The question we should ask here is, what then was the purpose of circumcision? The fact is, God eventually commanded Abraham to get circumcised. There's no doubt about that. He didn't invent it. He and every male in his family after him. And later on, Moses would do the same. God would require it of him. Every Jewish male after him was likewise circumcised on the eighth day after birth. Even Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. But why? What was it for? What was the purpose? What what was the point? Here in verse 11, Paul explains that God intended it to be a sign of, that seals God's promise to Abraham and his descendants. you remember the promise? It was a multifaceted promise, but originally it was, you are going to have a son. I mean, the man was, what, 99 years old. You are going to have a son. He, he had gotten the promise beforehand, and years and years and years went by, no son. And the Lord came back and said, look at the sky tonight, Abraham. See all those stars? You're going to have more children than the stars you can see in the heavens. And Abraham said, I want a son. You promised me a son. I don't have a son. And the Lord said, you will have a son. And Abraham believed. And God counted that as righteousness. Circumcision was the sign or the permanent mark on the physical body of every Jewish male that sealed them as God's chosen people. Therefore, every son of Abraham was to be circumcised. It was a sign that they were descendants of Abraham, the people of God. And so circumcision was a sign, but it was a sign that served also as a seal A sign marks and identifies something, but a seal guarantees something. It's a sign that guarantees something. So Paul writes in verse 11, he received circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was uncircumcised. And so here's here's the way we should think about this. Circumcision was... A reminder of God's promise, number one, that you will have children, although he was way too old and his wife Sarah was way too old to have children, and they did. 
don't ever forget this. He put a sign on him for that, to remember that, but to also remember something else. The other thing that they were to remember and terribly forgot. The one thing that they were really supposed to remember is that every time a baby is circumcised, it should remind you, God has promised we are God's chosen people through Abraham, and also we should remember that 14 years before the circumcision, God came to Abraham and said, you are justified by faith. And the Jews forgot that part. All they could see was circumcision, 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 circumcision. If you weren't circumcised, you weren't allowed in the temple. If you weren't circumcised, you weren't allowed to eat in a Jewish home. And so circumcision was a sign and a seal. Therefore, in addition to the fact that circumcision was to be an official mark, it was the guarantee. It was a guarantee. Every time a Jewish baby was born, it was, it was a reenactment of the guarantee Remember, 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 and don't forget. And they forgot. The idea of a sign or seal may seem a little bit unusual in our culture, but it's really not. You're very familiar with it. And you say, Pastor, I don't think I'm very familiar with this. Yes, you are. You say, well, I'm, I'm an unbeliever, and I don't think I, I, I know anything about this. Yes, you do. You all do. And some of you went to a wedding yesterday, and, and you saw something like this. I mean, we would all think it a little bit strange if we attended a wedding, a wedding that didn't involve the giving of rings. Of course, the Bible doesn't require the giving of rings for a couple to be truly married. But what I want you to see here is that the gift of rings at a wedding is actually a precious sign and seal as it were, of the covenant of marriage between a man and his wife. And so if you're a young guy and you come to church and you meet a really cute and godly girl and you look on her finger, is she in covenant with someone? You will know by the sign, right? And if there's a ring, you back off. And if there's no ring... I'm not throwing any hints. <laughs> In fact, I officiate weddings fairly regularly, and we normally establish a special place during the ceremony for the couple to exchange the rings, and here is part of, of what happens at that part of the ceremony. I have them say this. The ring, or I say part of this and they say part of it, the ring is a time-honored symbol of marriage. It is without beginning and without end. It is made of value that will never tarnish and will last for a lifetime. It stands as a symbol. Just insert the word sign. It stands as a symbol that can be worn, knowing that the relationship is true and lasting. And then the groom places the ring on his bride's finger, and he says this. This ring I give you in token and pledge. Just instead of pledge, say promise. In token and pledge of my abiding love and constant faith. With this ring I thee wed. The purpose of circumcision was similar to the purpose of 
a wedding ring. It was designed to give and given by God as a sign and seal of God's covenant and his promise. We should note, however, that circumcision was not only a sign, it was not only a sign we find in the Bible. Whenever God entered into a saving relationship with people, he always offered a sign. Let me just enlighten you. Noah. God rescued Noah, saved Noah and his family. And then he gave him a sign and a promise. The rainbow sealed the promise that God gave him that he would never again destroy the earth with flood. Abraham was given the sign of circumcision. Also, it sealed a promise that at the judgment, he and all who believe will be found right with God. It was just a sign. It wasn't the actual righteousness. It wasn't the actual declaration. It was only the sign. For Moses, the sign was the Sabbath day. Sealed, it sealed God's promise of a future permanent Sabbath rest in the presence of the Savior. In fact, in Hebrews, he says, he is our Sabbath rest. For Jesus' disciples, the sign of baptism also sealed the promise that, that death is overcome by resurrection unto eternal life. All who believe will be resurrected. And in the Lord's Supper is a sign that seals the promise that Jesus' death on the cross was payment in full for all the sins that we might enjoy fellowship with God forever. All of our sins have been paid for on the cross by his precious blood. Ultimately, all of these signs and seals point to one precious thing, the unmerited grace of God. All of the signs point to the unmerited grace of God. You know what the problem with the Jews was? They loved the engagement ring and they discarded the fiancé. It's ridiculous. And that's what Paul wants them to see. Ultimately, all of these signs... These signs were really nothing in themselves. You know what signs do? They point to things. They point to things. They point to something wonderful. They point to danger. None of them ever point to works of righteousness or human effort to earn God's favor. And so every time we gather to witness baptism or participate in the Lord's Supper, and every time we see a rainbow in the sky, in our hearts, we should be disciplining ourselves to say things to our own hearts like this. This is to remind me of God's grace. This baptism, this Lord's Supper, this is no condemnation here. This is to remind me of God's grace. Oh, Father, thank you for your grace. Help me to sense your grace, to know your grace, to grow in grace. Lord, I confess that I don't deserve it, but I praise and worship you and thank you for this very moment. No matter how I feel, you are pouring out upon me the riches of your grace, and I believe it.
You have said it. I believe it. I may not feel it. I want you to hear me say that. I may not feel it right now, but you are pouring grace upon grace. And I receive it not by feeling, but by faith. I'm alive by your grace. I am justified by your grace. All my sin is washed away by your grace. Help me to appropriate your grace to whatever I need right now. Thank you for your superabounding, never-ending, lavish, satisfying, saving grace. And so Paul has taught us that Abraham was justified apart from circumcision. Secondly, that he received circumcision as a sign and a promise as a symbol. And thirdly, Abraham, thirdly, Abraham is the father of all who believe. I love this one. I love all three of these. But I especially enjoyed this one this week, and I think you will too. In verses 11 through 13, let's pick up with... Um, Verse 11, Paul writes, The purpose was to make him, that is Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Now, who's that? They believe without being circumcised. Who are they? Well, they're Gentiles. It's you and me. So let me read that again. The purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him, that is Abraham, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For, purpose statement, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of, what's the next word? Faith. It's a free gift. But you have to humble yourself to receive it. And so we've learned that God's design for circumcision, and now Paul tells us God's purpose for circumcision. We've seen the reason for it, the design for it. Now we see the purpose of circumcision. Specifically, then, why did God establish that circumcision be instituted after Abraham was justified by faith? And Paul's answer here is this. The purpose was to make him the father of of all who believe without circumcision. And that righteousness would be counted, imputed, or reckoned to them as well. And you know what? Racially speaking, Abraham is the father of the Jews. But before he was the father of the Jews, he was the father of all Gentiles who believe. He is the father who all believe without being circumcised. That's us. In other words, Abraham is the father of all the Gentiles who believe, even though they have not become circumcised. In, in other words, he is the father of all the Gentiles who are justified by faith apart from the right or the work 
of circumcision. You don't have to do anything. If, when a Gentile comes along, like the one, the Philippian jailer, right? Probably a Roman. What must I do to be saved? Answer, say it with me now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Isn't that what Abraham said? Or what happened to Abraham? The Lord said he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Nothing added. Can I just say as an aside, I have two concerns in the church body. I mean, I've got lots of concerns and you know, a lot of things I rejoice over, but two things that stand out sometimes for me are number one, the people in the church body who think they're believers and they're not. And the other, the other group that I'm concerned about are people who truly are believers and they, they think they're not. And the reason they think they, they're not children of God, justified by grace through faith, is because they feel like they haven't been good enough or they have been too bad. They've done things that they're ashamed of. And so whenever they do something that makes them feel spiritually um, fruitful, their assurance of salvation returns. And then it's not long before they do something. They sin, they, they say something bad, or they, they watch something they shouldn't watch, or they go back to their, whatever their addiction is or whatever. And they say, it's too much, it's too much, it's too much. God can't, God can't save me. But I, can I just suggest to you that by that kind of thinking, what you're doing is you are adding things back into the foundation of the gospel that don't belong there. Stop putting them there in the foundation. You are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by being good. And you should be good as the fruit of what God has done for you. But stop confusing root and fruit. The root is sealed. It'll never change. The foundation is laid. It is, it'll never change. It is Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Have you hung all of your hope for eternal life on him and him alone? And that has radical implications for how you should live because you are already forgiven. You remember when Jesus, when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet? You remember what that was all about? It wasn't just a, a model of humility. He was showing us what we need from him every day. Every day. We need the Lord just to wash our feet. So much more should be said about this, and it re really would require a couple more sermons. And we'll get there, because Paul's going to talk about it in Romans. But beloved, you've got to learn. You've got to learn that when you sin, you fly to Christ, and not for salvation. You fly to Christ in humility, and, and you say, Lord, I've done it again. I've done it again. And no excuses. And I want to change, but right now, Lord, I confess that I've sinned against you. Would, would you be faithful to your promise? I know you'll be faithful to your promise. You said, if we confess our sins, if we say the same thing about our sin that you say about our sin, you will be faithful and just. 
God is justified in forgiving me of all unrighteousness, cleansing me from all unrighteousness. And then you know what you do? You may not feel very good still, but you get back up and you say, by grace, through faith, I'm going to take the next step. I'm going to do what God calls me to do next because I'm forgiven, even if I don't feel like I'm forgiven. So at the same time, Abraham was circumcised long after he was justified by faith. So, verse 12, so that he would be the father of all the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, He's the father of, Jew, of the Gentiles who believe. And he's the father of all the Jews who believe. And the way he describes that is those who follow in the footsteps of Abraham who believed and was declared righteous. See what he's saying to the Jews? The gospel is for you. This gospel I preach and I'm going to die for is for you. You see, the Jewish idol, idolized Abraham, the Jews idolized Abraham as the father of their nation. It was to him that God established the sign and the seal of circumcision. But somewhere along the way, the rabbis began equating the rite of circumcision with salvation. Just as many today equate the rite of infant baptism with salvation. It's a perfect parallel, and it's false. But that was never God's intent. Anyone can perform a sign. Anyone can make a seal. Any thief, any charlatan or murderer can play with religion to deceive himself into thinking that he or she is in good standing with God. But God has never been impressed by religious displays and he despises religious sacerdotalism that is disconnected from the heart. Sin and righteousness are always matters of the heart. And God sees the heart. And God changes the heart. And the Lord made it clear all the way back in Deuteronomy 10:15, when Moses said to God's people, the Lord set his heart, the Lord set his heart in love for your fathers, and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. This is Deuteronomy. This isn't Paul. From the very beginning, God was saying, I'm concerned about your heart. It's your heart. You can do all of the rituals and not have a heart that loves me, and I reject it all. Again, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses declares, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. No one who plays with religion, who has built a, has, has built a relationship with God on externals, not a relationship that God accepts. It's not going to church. It's not doing religious things. It's not the trappings, the ceremonies, the achievements by which a person is justified in his sight. Paul knew this. 
And that's why he said back in Romans 2, verse 28, listen carefully to this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Isn't it time you gave up religion? Isn't it time for you to fly to Christ, believing in his righteousness, his righteous life, his atoning sacrifice on your behalf for salvation? Isn't it time to become a child of Abraham through faith? And let today be that day for you. You have heard the Lord's gracious invitation today. Do not harden your heart, but believe. And if you are one who is confident today that by the blood and righteousness of Jesus, you have become a child of Abraham by faith, then you are justified by faith because of God's matchless grace so that you can leave this building today great joy. Now let's go back to Rome and that little church with its problems. And they finally get this, right? As a church, they get it. I can hear them responding to the reading of this part of Romans and scattered, sitting on the floor and everywhere else. And they're just awed. It's one of these moments where, where people, where you say, Why didn't we know this? Why weren't we taught this earlier? Why weren't my fathers taught this? Why didn't we know we are sons of Abraham? And one of the Gentiles stands up and says, Abraham is my father. And a Jewish man stands up and we're in the other corner and he stands up and he says, Abraham is my father. And a woman with his daughter stands up and says, Abraham is my father. And they start calling out to one another, Abraham is our father. He's my father by faith. Without the law, without circumcision, apart from all of those things, it is freely given to us. And by faith, we have received it. We are sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. And you know what? If you have a church where everybody thinks of of everybody else like that, you're going to realize we may come from different places and we may look differently and we may speak differently, but we are one. We are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. Oh, beloved, if you belong to Jesus, you are Abraham's children and heirs according to his promise. Amen. Father, we praise you for these truths. They are amazing, mind-blowing at some level. Mostly, Father, I think we come away from this this morning just being awed at your grace. 
How is it that you could take an idolater like Abraham and make him the father of everyone for whom you would send your Savior to die? Father, how could it be that you would be so gracious to us as to call us your sons and daughters in Christ? We worship you. We, we humble ourselves before you. And Father, I plead with you for the salvation of anyone here today who's on the fence about whether they should surrender their lives to Jesus. Oh, Father, make it today. Transform their heart. Cause them to be born again to a living hope. For your great glory and for our great joy, we pray in Jesus' name.